0: Welcome. This is LegalWise with Ted Eccles, a show dedicated to helping you find peace of mind through being well-informed and up-to-date. We want to help you defeat procrastination and provide information on legal matters that matter to you. I'm Ted Eccles, attorney, and you can reach us at LegalWiseGA.com. If you have a legal question or particularly an estate planning question, go to our website and write to us. We try to address questions that you, our listeners, will find interesting and helpful. You can also join us as part of our free virtual estate planning workshops. To register, give us a call, 770-506-9092, or visit our website at LegalWiseGA.com. We have a great show for you today on LegalWise with Ted Eccles. We'll answer questions about accidental disinheriting nuisances, liability waivers, executor duties, conflict resolution, and we'll hear from a special guest. So let's get started. We have a question from Wyatt. He says, my dad owned about five acres in South Georgia. A few years ago, he wrote in his will that I would specifically receive the five acres after he passed away. The will also said my sister would receive his two cars. But a few months before he died, my dad sold the land to pay off some debt. Am I still entitled to that land? Well, thanks for the question, Wyatt. Your question touches on an important principle when considering gifts in an estate plan. Your dad's plan involved a will. As we've discussed on legal wise with Ted Eccles, a will is an essential part of an estate plan that everyone should consider having. It provides a set of rules of how your estate should be administered after you pass away. Because the will is governing the person's estate after he passes away, you have to consider the types of gifts being employed when drafting the document. When a person decides to use specific gifts as part of their estate plan they run the substantial risk that the property will not be in the person's possession at the time they pass away. Georgia law dictates that if the person passes away without owning the specific item or parcel of property then the gift lapses. When a gift lapses the intended beneficiary is no longer entitled to the gift. In other words, the gift that's meant to occur pursuant to the will can no longer happen. This brings me to the answer to your question, Wyatt. Unfortunately, your father's sale of the five acres results in him losing possession of it before he died. Because he no longer owned it, it was not part of his estate, and therefore he can't gift it. You are not entitled to the five acres. I imagine this is quite frustrating because it sounds like he attempted to even out the value by giving your sister the two automobiles, which she continues to be entitled to receive if he still owned them when he died. To avoid this unfortunate result in will drafting, a person may want to consider some alternative strategies in gifting. Instead of mentioning particular items to give to beneficiaries, You may want to consider a distribution based on percentages rather than specific gifts, thus minimizing the possibility of accidentally disinheriting someone. So Wyatt, I'm sorry for the loss of your father. If your sister also believes that you have been accidentally disinherited, she may be open to sharing her inheritance with you. Thanks for the question. You're listening to LegalWise with Ted Eccles. If you have a question, visit LegalWiseGA.com. Edgar has a question for LegalWise with Ted Eccles. He says, my wife and I purchased our house on three acres over 30 years ago. Recently, we were walking in our backyard and a horrible odor blew in from our neighbor's property next door. We learned that our neighbor has a huge compost heap constantly producing this disturbing odor. What can we do? Well Edgar, this is an unfortunate situation because I know you and your wife enjoy spending time in your back garden. The situation with an intrusive odor and sometimes even bright lights or loud noise, these are all generally categorized as nuisances. When folks are victims of a nuisance, like an odor, there are many factors to consider. First, in an agricultural setting or in rural settings, most courts determine that property owners should expect to experience typical environments associated with normal uses of neighboring property. Therefore, for example, when living next to a farm, a property owner should likely expect to hear the occasional bleating of a goat or the lowing of cattle. However, most rural property owners do not expect that a cattle feedlot or an odor-producing slaughterhouse is typical for a rural setting. The unreasonable level of toxic smells may very well rise to the level of a nuisance. With the compost pile, a court will likely consider the extent to which the odor practically prevents your use of the property, the impact on your property's value, and your ability to avoid the stench and whether property like yours is typically used for recreational purposes. If the compost pile is in fact a nuisance, you may be entitled to money damages and an injunction requiring your neighbor to get rid of the odor-producing compost pile. An injunction is an order from the court requiring a person to cease engaging in certain behavior. But even if the court determines that the nuisance isn't so severe to justify an injunction, the court still may provide damages. So Edgar, if after talking with your neighbor about potentially voluntarily alleviating the problem, he still persists, you may want to contact an experienced attorney in your area and discuss the more formal options available for you. Thanks for the question, Edgar. You're listening to LegalWise with Ted Eccles. You're listening to LegalWise with Ted Eccles, and we have a special guest today, Morgan Tabb with Tab Insurance Agency. Thanks for being with us today, Morgan. Thank you, Ted.
1: Appreciate the uh, opportunity.
0: We have a lot of entrepreneurial listeners to LegalWise with Ted Eccles. What is the most important insurance product to buy when you're starting a new business, Morgan?
1: So it's, it's really going to vary uh, based on what you're doing. Um, that level of importance will be different for a trucker uh, than say for an insurance agent. Um, it, between those two industries, I would say that, you know, commercial auto liability is the most important aspect for the trucker. And then uh, professional liability uh, would be the most important aspect for the insurance agent. So it's key to, discuss that with your agent and say, hey, what do I need? And they'll be able to coach you on what they deem the most appropriate. Uh, If I had to pick one or two, uh, you know, general liability and workers comp, if you've got employees, those are two key policies that, uh, just kind of the basic building blocks of developing a a risk transfer, um, you know, portfolio, so to speak, through insurance policies.
0: Why is it important for a small business to purchase workers' comp insurance? And is it for the protection of the employee, for the protection of them as the employer? Just talk about that for a moment.
1: Yeah, it, it, it's it's important for both. It's important for both the, the business owners, the, the employer, and the employees Um you know, We're here in Georgia and the vast majority of our clients are, are, are Georgia-based businesses and, and residents. And in Georgia, just aside from it being good to have a work comp policy, if you have employees, you're legally required to have the coverage. If you have three or more employees, that's, that's the law. Um, a policy is gonna have, in most cases, a work comp policy is gonna have two components. One's the workers' compensation aspect. And then the other is employer's liability aspect. And the workers' comp is going to respond to that employee's injuries when they're hurt on the job. The employer's liability is what's protecting the business if that employee then turns around and sues the business as a result of the injury. Um, There'd have to be some level of negligence there on the part of the employer, you know, if they were clearly – telling an employee to go do something that they shouldn't have been doing and that resulted in an injury um, but the the workers compensation aspect is uh, that that's for the the medical bills the you know lost time the disability aspects all that is is governed by the state in which you're doing business and it's important to make sure the agent is constructing that policy correctly because There's different states and there's different laws, but ultimately, the work comp aspect, uh, what the insurance company pays out is dictated by state law.
0: Okay, and you mentioned that for a small business, if you have three or more employees, then it's statutorily required, but the idea of who is an employee isn't necessarily just because you state a person's an employee or an independent contractor, is it?
1: Yeah, that, that, you know, it's, it's kind of open to interpretation, but really, um, you know, obviously a W-2 employee, that's a, that's a clear case of that being your employee. But a 1099 can be your employee as well. Um, I, I all too often get the response, well, I don't need work comp, I, I only have subcontractors. Well, those subcontractors, they happen to be working, you know, at least a 40-hour week for that person. And they're consistently using the that, that crew of subcontractors. So if you're if if you have a 1099 or a sub and you are consistently using them and you're telling them where to be, what to do, how to do it, and then you're paying them for all of that, that's a pretty clear cut case if that's your employee. Um, hmm. and, and as you know, Ted, that probably gets litigated over a lot, but ultimately if you have three or more 1099s and they're consistent workers for you through your employees.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great insurance um, tool that's available and required for a lot of small businesses, but it's helpful for them. Hey, let's talk about this this thing that's been in the news a lot lately, cyber liability. Is that uh, something you guys over at in the ind- insurance industry are dealing with?
1: yes we're, we're we're seeing a lot of this and um you know compared to to workers compensation it's a relatively new coverage um really any business out there has an exposure to uh, a data breach uh, cyber liability what we mean by that is is that there's a coverage to respond to your expenses as a result of a breach so if you have to hire a forensic team to come in and try to identify uh, when and where the breach took place so that you can um, find a responsible party. That's your first party coverages of a cyber liability. Then there's a third party coverage that would respond if the uh, business is sued as a result of the breach. So if you're managing sensitive data and, you get sued by John Doe because he lost $100,000 as a result of your breach, then the third-party liability coverage of the cyber policy would respond. Um, We could get into a little bit of technology errors and omissions too. Now that's a different coverage, but it plays into this some. If you're programming software or um, developing websites and, and things of that nature, there's a specific coverage that is often confused with cyber liability, I've found, but it's really technology errors and omissions. It's a professional liability type that would respond to your mistake or omission in your work. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, cyber is a big topic. Um, it's not difficult to get. There's, there is a, a pretty detailed application that the client has to fill out, but um, we are dealing with that a lot and we're, we're, we're seeing claims.
0: I think that that is a... An area that, that many new businesses may not even think about. And, and if you've been operating for a while, you may businesses may have collected client information and storing it on their computers at the shop. And it would seem like that's something that may be, it could be one of the most overlooked areas with the business these days.
1: Yeah, really, it really is. It, and, and we're trying to get out in front of it and just advise people that this exists. And really, you know, the the people that absolutely one hundred percent need it are the folks that are dealing with sensitive data and have a large, you know, pool of data at their fingertips. That's that's you know, PII or uh, personally identifiable information. Mm-hmm. But also, it can just be that you don't have to have a ton of data. Uh, These policies can respond to a ransomware attack. I mean, they could hold your system hostage to where you can't log in, you can't process transactions, you can't sell goods. Um, You know, a manufacturer, for example, they could shut down, they attack you with a virus and then just make your entire system stop until you pay them whatever they're asking for. And there's coverage for that under a cyber liability policy too.
0: Well, I'm, I think that that could be could be very uh, helpful, and for the business that is attacked in that way, that that insurance could be a lifesaver. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So let's talk about another topic. Um, if if I'm renting an office or a warehouse space for my small business, what type of insurance product do I need to consider?
1: So really, uh, again, it kind of goes back to the nature of that business. Um, into what's going to be appropriate but if it's a simple business and if you can get a business owner's policy that is a um just a, a well put together policy it's got a lot to it it's kind of a you're almost it, it, imagine like buying a combo at a you know a fast food restaurant uh you know you get the drink fries and the burger all in one that's what a business owner's policy is like it's 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 usually reserved for lower risk industries but there are some companies out there that will dabble in higher risk industries and provide a business owner's policy. But ultimately you need, you know, liability coverage for a slip and fall on premises. Um, That's general liability and uh, your coverage for your contents. um, You really shouldn't be responsible for the um, building itself because that's a different ownership asset or interest. And um, the building owners would have building coverage for that. But uh, even still, your general liability policy is going to have what's called fire legal liability um, or damage to premises rented. That can be broadened to include more perils than just fire. But if you negligently start a fire it burns a building down, your liability could potentially respond
0: to that. Okay. Well, we've been talking with Morgan Tab today with Tab Insurance. Thanks for joining us today, Morgan. And tell us if... If a listener has a question, how can they contact you and learn more about TAB insurance?
1: Yeah, thanks, Ted. Uh, again, I appreciate you know being involved here. Uh, we are located in Georgia. We, our main office is in Conyers, and we can be reached at 770-483-1800. My direct extension is 32. Uh, we've got a website. You can find us online and Google, and um, you can also reach us via email. At info at tabinsurance.com or morgantab at tabinsurance.com.
0: All right, great. You're listening to Legal Wise with Ted Eccles. When it's time for you to buy or sell your next home, look no further than Monica's team with Keller Williams Realty. Through personal interaction and individualized attention, Monica Bernal and her team are committed to helping connect buyers with sellers so that sellers can exit their home quickly and buyers can minimize the time they spend looking for their perfect home. For your real estate needs, contact Monica's team at MonicaBernal.com. That's Monica, B-E-R-N-A-L.com. Or give her team a call at 678-790-0516. Bridget has a question. She says, I have recently decided to open a new business where I offer students, youth groups and corporate teams outdoor activities like archery and axe throwing. I know that I need to obtain written waivers of liability. Does age matter when getting signatures? Well, what a great question, Bridget. Congratulations on your new business venture. You are smart to consider the various legal documents that are needed when starting a new business, particularly when it involves potentially dangerous activities. It is always a good idea to seek the advice of an attorney when drafting legal documents like a waiver and a release. These documents typically inform the participant of the anticipated risk associated with the activity and shield the provider of the activity from liability if someone is hurt. A waiver and release are essential documents for activities like the ones you're offering. While they provide general protection for the activity host, it is nevertheless a good idea to provide written instructions and warnings about conduct while on your premises. You have presented an important question regarding obtaining waivers and releases from young people. Contracts including waivers may not be legally enforceable when signed by someone under the age of 18. Therefore, you'll most likely want to make sure that a parent or guardian signs the necessary paperwork for any minor participating in the activities offered by your business. As an additional word of caution, you may want to train your employees to check IDs to make sure that the person signing is, in fact, an adult. It will likely not be an acceptable excuse for your employee to say that they did not know the person was not an adult. Thanks for the question, Bridget, and stay on target. You're listening to Legal Wise with Ted Eccles. <music> Liam has a question for Legal Wise with Ted Eccles. He says, My uncle passed away a month ago. His will. Name my nephew, my niece, and myself as the only beneficiaries. It designates me as the executor of the estate. But despite this designation, my nephew has called and told me he is going to take my uncle's boat and keep it at the lake. Can he take the boat before I am appointed executor and before I handle the administration of the estate? Well, thanks for the question, Liam your situation occurs more often than you might think. The short answer to your question is that your nephew should not take the boat before you distribute the assets from the estate. An executor is responsible for the entire estate of a deceased person. You are the executor. That means you're a fiduciary. And as a fiduciary, you owe a few duties to the estate, such as the duty to expediently administer the estate and to do so as a reasonable person would in the same or similar circumstances. As part of your job as an executor, you have a few ways to treat your nephew's decision to take the boat before you distributed the estate's assets. One choice is to demand the immediate return of the boat. An executor has the authority to recover possession of the entire estate, including the boat. Well, another less confrontational approach is to account for his conduct in the final distribution of the estate, so long as you're okay with the nephew ultimately receiving the boat. The final distribution of the estate requires that you pay all expenses and creditors first, and then give the remaining assets of the estate to the beneficiaries. In your case, you may include the boat as part of your nephew's final distribution you would deduct the value of the boat from the ultimate amount he should receive from the estate. Thanks for the question, Liam. You're listening to LegalWise with Ted Eccles. If you have a question, go to legalwisega.com When I was around four years old, I had a shiny red tricycle. One morning I was riding in front of my house alongside my brother who was riding his bike. An older kid from down the street approached us in a confrontational manner, and he leaned down and grabbed my handlebars with both hands. I demanded he let go, and he refused. In response, I instinctively formed a fist with my left hand reared back and punched him square in the nose. His nose began to bleed. He grabbed it with both hands and ran back to his house. While legal-wise with Ted Eccles certainly does not recommend violence as a constructive dispute resolution technique, this does present an interesting legal question. What are the legal issues presented by these facts? Well, from a criminal perspective, a person can't be convicted of a crime when they lack mental capacity to understand the consequences of their actions. In Georgia, A four-year-old is considered too young to be criminally responsible for his actions and can't be convicted of a crime. From the civil standpoint, parents are typically responsible for the torts or acts of negligence committed by their children. However, when a child is defending himself from the aggressive behavior of another child and injures that aggressive child, a significant question remains as to whether the defensive behavior is justified so that it relieves him of liability. As parents, when our children are faced with challenging conflicts, we can use these as opportunities to begin teaching them about constructive conflict resolution techniques. Many times, they learn life's most important lessons by watching how their parents address challenging circumstances. You're listening to LegalWise with Ted Eccles. Submit your questions to LegalWiseGA.com. You've been listening to LegalWise with Ted Eccles. I hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have any questions or want more information, contact us at LegalWiseGA.com or give us a call, 770 5069092. While legal advice can help, we know that true peace is found through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Join us next week as we answer more interesting questions from listeners just like you.
1: The information. Comments and opinions expressed in Legal Wise with Ted Eccles do not constitute legal advice. The topics discussed and opinions given are general in nature and not intended to create any legal relationship or opinion about specific circumstances. No attorney-client relationship has been or will be formed by any communication or legal discussion, and no representation is made regarding your particular legal rights. For legal advice, contact an attorney actively practicing in your jurisdiction.